The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Just a reminder that you can get an ad-free version of this podcast by becoming a supporter of Lawfare's Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. You also get other goodies as a member of our Patreon supporters club, including access to Lawfare Live events weekly. So come join our Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare. We all started carrying smartphones or cell phones to start with, and then smartphones, and it's the radio in your pocket that that can track where you are outside. In the encryption debate, we're now talking about client-side scanning, which would be somewhat different because it would be a surveillance tool in your pocket. But if we talk about having to use the apps, I don't know what that means for the general public. Are people going to be willing to carry around a phone with them if it means that it exposes they hung out with their best friend who happens to work for the competitor, or it reveals that they hung out with a former girlfriend for a, for a beer? I, I think that the whole idea that we would have to use digital contact tracing or digital exposure notification apps is a very scary model and one that that has not been thought through at all, as opposed to, here's the app, it's a choice to use it. And in Singapore, it's no longer really a choice because to enter a mall, to enter a business place, to go to work, you need to, to have the app on your phone and it needs to be running. And so the idea that the app use was voluntary is by now a fig leaf rather than a reality. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 7th, 2021. It's been more than a year since the first contact tracing and exposure notification apps for the novel coronavirus have appeared, and the apps have not at all lived up to the hype. They've almost invariably stumbled and not really worked at all. I sat down with Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota School of Law and a Senior Editor at Lawfare, and Susan Landau, a Computer Science Professor at Tufts and a Senior Contributor for Lawfare to talk about digital disease surveillance during the COVID-19 pandemic. What went wrong? What are the lessons to be learned? It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 7th, a digital contact tracing retrospective. All right, so Susan, as you wrote in a piece for Lawfare, it's been a year since the first contact tracing and exposure notification apps for for COVID-19 had appeared. So just walk us through in really general terms Who were the early adopters? When did different countries start to make use of these apps? And how did the adoption happen over time? Sure. It started with Singapore doing Trace Together, which is what we call a centralized system. If Alyssa and Ben both are running the app and are in close proximity, their phones exchange identifiers. The identifiers in the the Trace Together app are based on their phone numbers. If nothing happens, if neither of them get ill, the identifiers just stay on their phones. But if Ben later becomes diagnosed with COVID, when a Singapore Ministry of Health contact tracer calls him, they ask whether he has the app. If it does, then all the identifiers his phone has collected go up to the Singapore Ministry of Health, which can figure out that Alicia's phone was one of the phones that sent an identifier. They recognize the identifier from the phone number because it's based on the phone number. And then they call Alicia. That's a centralized system because the Ministry of Health learns that Ben and, uh, and Alyssa have, I said Alicia, but I meant Alyssa, Ben and Alyssa have been in contact, have been in close proximity to one another. Korea, South Korea, used a different model 
they, after the MERS outbreak, in which over 100 people, maybe 200 people actually got ill from MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, South Korea decided to update its privacy law. So in the case of a health emergency, some of the privacy protections would ease for a time. They also updated other laws so that there could be emergency approval of testing equipment. So when when COVID happened, South Korea used a combination of CCTV records, GPS records from cell phones, and credit card information to quickly identify people who'd been exposed. But they didn't use the apps on the phone. That was all March, April. Maybe maybe South Korea was even February. But in Europe, in North America, in Australia, cryptographers, epidemiologists, computer scientists were concerned about sharing all that information with the government. And so they came up with a model where the data would be decentralized. If Alice and Bob's phones exchange the data, then if Bob later gets ill, his phone will upload the identifiers that his phone has sent out. Alice's phone downloads from the health department all the identifiers that have been collected. If it sees an identifier that it has already collected, it says, bingo, you've been exposed. It doesn't really say bingo. It says you've been exposed. And so that information is decentralized. Swiss COVID was the first app to come out using that. Other apps rolled out from Europe over the summer. The U.S. was slower. And the first state app rolled out in August in the United States, the first state app based on what's called the Google Apple infrastructure, because things had to be done to the phones to enable them to work well. And so maybe a helpful way of thinking about the extent to which these apps didn't really end up working would be for both of you to sort of walk me through over time throughout the course of the year, the way that your thinking has evolved on the question of, of these contact tracing apps. So I've had I've been in the position of editing you both as you've been writing throughout the pandemic about how these things have worked. But I, I do think it'd be curious to hear from both of you, how have your feelings changed about these apps over the course of the year, both from a, a prudential perspective and from a do these things work perspective or from a legal perspective? And as more information has trickled out, how has your how has your stance on them changed? Alan, I'd be curious to start with you. My main impression is that we never really tried very hard in this country to do digital contact tracing. And so I actually come away with this, on the one hand, pretty disappointed that there really never was much of a push for this, even given the enormous cost of this pandemic. Um, but at the same time, not sure if the the kind of failure of our meager attempts, as it were, really says much about the future viability of this technique and this tool. So you know, the first thing I wrote about this was, I think, back in, in March, a year ago, when the pandemic was sort of first beginning. And I wrote this piece about you know whether or not government-mandated contact tracing and really invasive digital disease surveillance would be constitutional under the Fourth Amendment, because I, I thought that's what was going to happen, and we're going to have all these challenges, and you know all the lawyers are going to have to come out of the woodwork and figure out how to make this really invasive surveillance concord with the Fourth Amendment. And I had all these arguments, and you know, then built that out into a whole law review article. And it turns out that we never got anywhere near to that point. There was never a real attempt to mandate contact tracing or any kind of digital disease surveillance from the U.S. government. And really, you know, the most we got were some voluntary attempts. And, and those voluntary attempts, why, while I think were really well-intentioned and, and really quite sophisticated from an engineering perspective and did a really good job in preserving privacy, and here I think the, the Apple-Google architecture, the Apple-Google API that Susan just referenced is a really good example of that, they were frankly never robust enough and they were never implemented widely enough. And frankly, there wasn't really enough demand, and we can talk about why there wasn't enough demand, to make much of a difference. Now, I still think that thinking through contact tracing, the kind of technical and, and policy side, which I know Susan has done really, really good work on, and has just published a book about the, the legal side, which is sort of what I've been trying to focus on, I still think that's important for the next pandemic, because we've seen the costs of lockdown, we know how immense they are, we, we understand now that the potential for an, another pandemic is very high, and the next pandemic may be much worse in terms of both infectiousness and lethality than COVID. And so it's important to think through that now. So I still think this kind of thinking work is worthwhile. I, I'm just quite disappointed that it ended up making such a little difference in the United States, because 
although we were willing to lock down, you know, huge portions of the country and hundreds of millions of people at a time, we never seemed to take that same intensity and try to do something much more targeted that could have actually been much more useful. And Susan, I'd be curious to hear from you. I, I remember very early when there was some buzz that maybe these apps would be an, an effective way of easing restrictions and lowering daily infection rates. You had expressed some skepticism on a bunch of different grounds, many of which I think have been borne out to be quite correct. I'm curious to hear from you, what has been your reaction to how these these apps have and haven't worked? And could you just walk us through the real ways in which they have not worked? Sure. So I originally started writing about it for Lawfare because I heard somebody talk about being on a ferry and somebody being ill. and that person wanted to know where the person had traveled, or the ill person had traveled on the island. And I thought, wait, this is crazy. But it was late March. And by then, we already knew that COVID spread indoors, very little outdoors. We didn't, we didn't know it to the extent we understand it now. But GPS doesn't track indoors. And I thought, this is, this is crazy. So I wrote a piece on efficacy. And began thinking more about efficacy. By then, the conversation had moved to Bluetooth tracking, and I'm sitting right now, as many people are, still in our in our homes, working from home. And um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was sitting at my desk, and the cursor on my desktop just began going all over the place. And I knew about the Russian attack on Ukraine in December 2015. And I knew that then the cursors of the, the workers there in the in the power grid companies, the cursors had all gone all over the place and they had no control over it. And here, the same thing was happening to me, but I decided I probably wasn't a, a target of the Russians. So I shouted upstairs to my husband, whose study is about 25 feet away and one floor up. And I said, are you using your mouse? And he said, yeah, but the cursor isn't moving. I said, it is on my machine. And that's when I realized that Bluetooth, which is the signal that, that the mouse sends to the, to the desktop, sometimes does wacky things. And in particular, can go much further distance than, than we expect and can go through walls. And that made me think about false positives of exposure using Bluetooth. And there's also, of course, false negatives because of people being asymptomatic. And so I, I wrote about that, and then I, I worked on the book on contact tracing apps with my intent, much like Alan's, to cover the issues so when there was the next pandemic, we understood the issues of, of contact tracing apps. And there are two ways my thinking changed over the course of writing the book and over the course of seeing the apps adopted or not adopted. The first was to realize how much deeper the equity problem is than I had realized back last spring when I wrote uh, a lawfare post with Christy Lopez and, and Laura Moy, which is to say different cultures have really different reactions to public health, to government. Originally, we thought the equity issue was, hey, the apps can only run on newfangled phones. It turns out there are other equity issues that are pretty important. There are also the whole issue that contact tracing really works via trust and contact tracers work to establish trust with their users. And so having an app doesn't do the same thing. So there was that piece. There was also a study that came out earlier this year of app adoption in England. And now, of course, the app in England is based on, on the, the government app in England is based on the Google Apple infrastructure. And so you don't know exactly who adopted it. But when the app was adopted, people put in the first few digits of their postcode. And so there's some knowledge about what parts of the UK were using it and what ratios. Using that and statistical modeling, the researchers said, well, between 317,000 and 914 cases were avoided between September to December 2020. But they also said this happened in more rural, better off regions of the country. And that bolsters up the whole issue of this is a form of technology that takes a health system that at least in the United States, and, and I, I can't comment about the UK, but in the United States, that, that has serious inequities. And it, again, pushes things towards those people who are already doing better. And now there's no question that an app that prevents somebody from getting sick is really useful. 
But if it, the app also moves health care of one sort or another, tests, doctor attention, to a community that is doing better at the expense of a community that is not, then, then we need to figure out when we use the apps what we will do to provide the, the communities that are in trouble. So I want to walk through a bunch of different counterfactual ways of, of looking at what might have happened in the U.S. So let's imagine a situation first where there is some app, purely an app-based system that works very well, overcomes miraculously some of the technological hurdles that we saw this time around, but it's not supplemented by anything like what we saw in Korea or, or other parts of the world where there was more holistic, broader digital contact tracing. Is there a world in which there could ever be an effective app-based and basically app-exclusive digital contact tracing? Alan, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from you first. I mean, I think it'd be better than nothing, but I, I, I guess I'm not, I don't think it'd be ideal. And I don't think anyone should argue for exclusive contact tracing app approaches to pandemics. I mean, I, again, I, I, I think it is, would still be probably useful because it would probably change enough people's behavior on the margins to be helpful. I mean, one thing that we, one thing that's been really notable about this pandemic is that a lot of the kind of public health benefits, let's say of putting masks on, for example, although we've seen them more in those jurisdictions that have mandated them, we also saw them actually to a great degree in jurisdictions and states that did not mandate them. And that's because people are both relatively self-interested and also fairly pro-social. And so once they know that they're uh, in danger of being exposed or uh, they're a danger to others, people do tend to take some level of precaution. Now, they may not take the level of precaution that public health experts might want them to, but they do do something. So, I mean, I, I guess if, if the question is, would I rather have a world in which the government did nothing or the government did nothing, but there was a contact tracing app, I, I guess I would select the latter. I would just hate for that ever to be the, the the alternative set. So what would a more robust system be like, right? You you mentioned when you started off here, right, you, you had anticipated all these potential legal challenges to very aggressive, mandatory surveillance systems. What are the different models that that either countries adopted in practice or that you you maybe envisioned these countries or even places in the United States adopting that just didn't come to fruition. Alan, I'd be curious you first. Sure. I mean, I, I think, and, and Susan mentioned this earlier in the conversation, I think Korea is is a very impressive model. Now, they sounds like they didn't use sort of the, the contact tracing app approach that let's say Singapore did, but they could easily have done so if they had wanted to. Um, but what they did instead, and what they really focused on was taking a lot of streams of information, credit card information, CCTV information, transportation information, and then feeding that together to give them a really granular picture of where individuals were and who they were in contact with. And, and that, in addition to a bunch of other public health measures that South Korea uh, took, I want to be very clear, it's not just a technological fix, but the technological uh, solutions that that South Korea used were very effective, and and this is why South Korea um, has essentially avoided the the worst features of the pandemic. Now, whether one could replicate that in the United States is an interesting and difficult question. It's difficult to scale from a relatively small, homogenous, centralized country like South Korea to a enormous, diverse, fairly decentralized country like the United States. Obviously, there are different legal regimes. Some of the particularly aggressive approaches that South Korea took may not be compatible with U.S. either statutory or constitutional law, but with sufficient motivation, the United States could replicate at least a good amount of uh, what the South Koreans did. Again, there's institutional capacity concerns about whether that could be done well, but I think mostly the concerns are political and, and, and cultural. But the thing I do want to just emphasize here is that Although a lot of these debates are often framed in a kind of privacy versus liberty or, you know, liberty versus safety kind of trade-off, I, I don't think that's really true. I mean, in either situation, you are giving up substantial liberty. In South Korea, you're giving up a lot of liberty of information, a lot of privacy of information, right? But in the United States, you're giving up enormous liberty of employment, liberty of motion, liberty of movement, liberty of being able to see your friends and family. So, you know, a pandemic is bad in part because it restricts our choice set and imposes costs. The question for a society is how it wants to distribute those costs. And by not adopting the, I think, aggressive measures that a country like South Korea or Singapore took, we didn't avoid the costs. We just took them a different way. And then also to, to Susan's point about equity, she's absolutely right that 
the equity concerns are, I think, really important here, but, but they're on both sides because, you know, on the one hand, not only are, whether it's racial minorities or, or you know, poor people, not only are they often on the kind of receiving end of excessive government intervention and surveillance, which is absolutely true, they're also tend to be more vulnerable to the effects of disease itself. So, you know, although I, I take Susan's point very seriously that equity considerations have to be really high on, on the list, I, I'm actually not convinced that they cut certain, I'm, I'm not convinced that they cut against aggressive action, um, including aggressive digital surveillance when it comes to dealing with uh, disease. Susan, I'd be curious from you, is there a country when, when you have done all this work to look back on the ways in which these programs have or haven't worked, is there a particular country, whether it's Korea or otherwise, that stands out to you? And is is what happened there, do you see it as, as replicable elsewhere or sort of a, a product of idiosyncratic in-country factors? So when I wrote the book, I ended it with two examples. One was South Korea and the other one was Harvard, which is not exactly a country, although sometimes it feels like one. And with South Korea, they made a decision, the the people of the country made a decision in 2015 that they were willing to do without certain privacy protections during a pandemic. And given their location, the physical location in the world, they expected to be subjected to one sooner than later. And so they made the change in the privacy law. They also made a change in the healthcare law and allowed rapid testing of of tests and other equipment during a pandemic. And that's significant because digital contact tracing of any sort is only going to work if there is also healthcare support underneath. So for example, with Swiss COVID, which used exposure notification apps, If somebody was warned that they'd been exposed, they could call the Swiss health ministry, discuss the information they had, and discuss whether or not they should quarantine. And if they should quarantine and isolate, then whether or not they could do so and work from home. Because if not, then the Swiss government would pay part of their salary to enable them to to stay at home. We don't have that kind of holistic health care solution here. In South Korea, there were privacy invasions. The databases that the government put up about where infected people had traveled originally provided enough information, including age and gender, to identify who those people had been, which made it very unpleasant for them. In the fact that it was publicized where neighborhoods are were that, that there had been outbreaks, when people then fell sick after one particular outbreak in a neighborhood of gay bars that outed some people. So there were privacy invasions that were unexpected. And in some of those cases, the South Koreans then changed how much information they published. But the big thing about South Korea is that people were willing to wear masks and they were willing to wear masks early. Alan has said that even parts of uh, the country where masks weren't necessarily mandated, people wore masks. But what we saw in the United States was much less willingness to take action at fairly low invasive technologies like masks. I wanted to get to Harvard. So Harvard also tried digital contact tracing, small experiment last summer in which they used Wi-Fi signal from different classrooms. They wired up the rooms. But Harvard was also testing people three times a week. Anybody who came onto campus was tested three times a week. What they discovered after a couple of months of the experiment of using the Wi-Fi apps is that it wasn't particularly efficacious. Harvard, however, was in a position to devote lots of funding towards the testing. And so what you've got is on the one hand, South Korea deciding in 2015, hey, protecting against this kind of pandemic, we're going to make these changes. Harvard, having done some things with email metadata five, six years earlier that had had the campus on edge, put in tough privacy protections. And when this issue came up, said, no, we can afford to do the testing. And the testing, in fact, turns out to be the random testing of people on campus. That is, everybody's tested three times a week, regardless of whether there's any indication of exposure. That was their answer. And they stopped the Wi-Fi experiment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there, and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay, and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I just wanted to to make a kind of follow-up point about Korea, uh, because I I think um, that the lesson of Korea is sometimes misunderstood in, in the media. And, and, you know, as I've been, you know, involved in this issue and, and reading about it over the last year, you know, you do sometimes see these reports about, you know, 
Um, South Korea did really well. Singapore did really well. Taiwan did really well. You know, why, why can't we do it that well? And one argument that's sometimes been made is that what works in those countries won't work here because of cultural differences, right? And, and the nature of these cultural differences is not usually explained or, or defended particularly well. You know, it seems to be some sort of, I think, kind of a, often a lazy stereotype about the more, you know, often, you know, quote unquote, Confucian cultures of, of these countries and how they're much more, you know, supposedly rule following and collectivist. And, you know, to the extent that there are cross-country sociological differences, um, that is not what is motivating the willingness of, let's say, the South Koreans to wear masks or masks or, or, or the willingness of South Koreans to put up with, as Susan pointed out, pretty privacy invasive government action. South Korea was just burned by a pandemic much more recently than we were, right? The the MERS, the, the Middle East Respiratory uh, Syndrome outbreak in 2015 was was quite traumatic for that country. And the government got enormous criticism for how it treated that situation, in part because it did things like not notifying neighborhoods and of, of, of infections there because of privacy concerns and trying to tamp down an anxiety. And so South Korea went through that experience. The government was, was quite criticized. It was, you know, chastened. Uh, and it decided that um, what it would do instead was adopt a much more aggressive approach that uh, valued the public safety and public health issues more than the privacy issues. Um, so that, I think, is explains more about um, why the, the South Koreans and, and the kind of the, the East Asian countries in general did a, a better job. Again, it's not any sort of, I think, cultural difference um, between them and the United States. It's rather that they lived through a pandemic in a way that we have not. And now that we have lived through a pandemic, and we have seen how incredibly, incredibly damaging um, it is. And, and I think despite us all living through it, I, I still think there is a public underestimation of just how enormously damaging this was in terms of economic dislocation, social dislocation, the magnitude of deaths. I mean, this really is the worst thing that has happened in the world in many, many decades. Um, so I am optimistic that Having lived through this, we may also be able to kind of recalibrate our expectations of, of what is an appropriate privacy sacrifice. Now, if we decide, and I could imagine us doing so, you know, we could decide to adopt the, the Harvard model, right? As, as Susan has pointed out, and instead of doing digital contact tracing, we just start forcibly testing every single person three times a week the next time a pandemic comes around. I, again, I am in principle okay with that. I'm not convinced that that would be viewed as substantially less intrusive, frankly, uh, than uh, digital contact tracing. So I, I would just caution thinking that we can avoid accepting a real privacy hit, uh, because I think that will be inevitable. So I want to say here that one of the things we should have done early on was, of course, random testing in neighborhoods to know to understand the spread of the disease. Our problem with testing was a disaster, and that's part of what led us to to such a, a poor situation. But the rest of it is we've sort of elided over the whole issue of how efficacious these apps are. There's the issue, of course, that I mentioned of asymptomatic carriers. There's the issue of what happens when the signal goes through walls. We don't understand enough about exposure, or rather, exposure does not mean getting ill. So if any of the three of us get an exposure notification on our phone, the biggest change is that instead of going to the supermarket once a week during the worst of the pandemic, we hire someone to do that for us if we haven't already done so. But for somebody who's working in food services, for somebody who's working in a low-income job, the third time they get an exposure notification are required to stay home till they're their time of, no, you haven't really been infected, passes, and they've lost their paycheck those three times in a row is the time that they shut off the app, they shut off their phone, they don't carry it with them. Unless we put in a holistic healthcare solution, which includes covering low-income people in a very different way than we do in this country, the apps aren't going to be efficacious. They're going to have an inequitable effect on the population. So, Alan, you had mentioned that part of the the legacy of the the effectiveness of Korea's pandemic response in particular is that they had had right they had had this experience with MERS and then a key part of the post MERS experience were real significant overhauls to the South Korean legal regime basically to accommodate the type of expansive public health surveillance that helped unclear how much helped them succeed this time around 
right? And you made the argument to us that like, because the United States has now endured such a catastrophic pandemic, we're more likely to respond in, in better ways going forward. And I think that in some ways is pretty inarguable, but if part of the Korean success in adapting to a previous pandemic experience is real significant legislative and, and legal overhaul, is there any chance that something like that gets replicated in the United States? Is there a way in which this the pandemic could change people's attitudes toward legal authorities in a way that would make a successful response more likely? It's possible. I don't think the main stumbling block is legal. I mean, I think one has to be careful when crafting pandemic responses to thread the needle between, you know, effectiveness and aggressiveness on the one hand and making sure that you're abiding by the constitution you know, and, and all the legal requirements on the other hand. But I think that that can be done. That's kind of a technocratic exercise that I'm very confident if you got enough sort of smart lawyers and policy people and epidemiologists and technologists into a room, you, you could kind of figure that out without too much trouble. Uh, I think the bigger problem is, is political. You know, it's always hard to get, sort of get anything done, um, especially at the federal level um, because, of, because of gridlock because of polarization. Uh, I think that one of the really unfortunate features of the timing of the pandemic was that it occurred during the last year of the Trump presidency, which was bad for many reasons, most obviously because Trump did not handle it well. But it was also bad because it occurred during an election and you suddenly politicize an issue that really has no business being politicized. And because of that, it is difficult to talk about the pandemic. It is difficult to talk about the failures of US pandemic policy without implicitly criticizing Donald Trump, criticizing the Republican Party, criticizing, you know, the 47% of the electorate that voted for Donald Trump, you know, whatever the case is. And so that makes it very difficult to do the work that ideally would be done, which is for Congress to come together and do long-term planning and set up a, an infrastructure, a legal infrastructure in place that would allow the executive in the next pandemic to activate certain emergency powers, which would permit certain levels of data collection, certain mandates on surveillance, uh, and that there would be a process for that, and there would be a, a sunset and a timeline for that, and all, all that sort of stuff, right? That, which is hard to do in any circumstance, um, because it is technically challenging, and it is also just hard to get politicians to focus on stuff that may happen in the future, potentially after they have left office. But given the politicized atmosphere, I'm, I'm sort of really, I'm not very optimistic. Now, what I am optimistic about is this happening at the state level. You know, one thing that I was heartened by was there were some states that were willing to take a fairly aggressive approach to coronavirus. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily handled it that well. That doesn't mean that just because a state had a Democratic governor or decided to handle things aggressively, they always handled it better than a state that, you know, perhaps did not handle it as aggressively. Um, I think there's a lot of argument here about, you know, whether a state like Florida, for example, which took often a kind of half a loaf approach, in some ways actually did a, a pretty smart job with the pandemic. Those are all interesting questions. But what I am heartened by is the willingness of at least some states to take this very seriously. Now, a state is not the federal government. Obviously, it is better if things are coordinated nationally, and a state can't really restrict population flows into and out of its state. So what a state does is, is limited in, in its sort of efficacy. But nevertheless, states are large. States have tens of millions of people in them. You know, states are fairly wealthy. And so if a state wanted to set up a mandatory disease surveillance program, um, I think it could do so. And I think there are at least some states, right, states with probably unified democratic control, where, you know, I'm thinking Massachusetts, for example, might, might be sort of the best example of this, where I could imagine the legislature getting together and saying, you know what, we can't necessarily trust the federal government um, to get this right the next time. So we are going to uh, set up a set of authorities that our governor can activate the next time there's a pandemic to, you know, whether it's replicate sort of a South Korea style model um, across the state, replicate a Harvard, you know, test every 48 hours model across the state, whatever, whatever it is. And so I would look for action there. Um, so I would like just to make a comment about the states. It's one of the peculiarities of the United States that despite the existence of the CDC and all the briefings we had from Washington, public health is a state and local responsibility. And that makes it really, really complicated because you can't, uh, the way Taiwan can say, anybody who comes into the country must quarantine for this amount of time. You can't enforce something like that. And, and so the ability of the states to keep themselves safe is hard. Now, there were pacts like between Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York, and then later between the states of, of, of the whole New England, mid-Atlantic, 
uh, about having the same rules about stores opening and so on that that shows some ability to do that sort of thing but we're one nation but 50 states and that's that's why part of the comparison to taiwan or south korea or singapore doesn't doesn't really work because we have 50 different healthcare governments at least and in fact there are more than that so alan you had mentioned earlier that the archetypical liberty privacy security trade-off framework for thinking about surveillance pre-pandemic imported a bit awkwardly to the covid surveillance context right it it didn't fully map onto the the trade-offs that we're experiencing now and you like susan are are sort of a veteran of the surveillance debates that predate the pandemic i'm curious to hear how do you think that those sort of the the modes of thinking about surveillance and sort of the the discourse about surveillance as a general matter imported into the pandemic how did that inflect the discussion of of covid related surveillance again i i think to me the the most dispiriting part of a lot of the debate i mean the most dispiriting part was that we never got far enough for this to matter i mean we, we never got we ne- we never tried to do anything that was national mandate mandated government led that would actually tee up these issues i would have loved to have that debate but we never really even got there right we were still arguing about kind of Apple and Google. And and there was this kind of weird moment where we all seemed to just outsource policy analysis and kind of difficult value trade-offs to Apple and Google. And I'm nothing against Apple and Google, and I have nothing against them having their own API, but the idea that, well, Apple and Google have decided that, you know, this is going to be our policy trade-off and we'll allow Bluetooth, but we won't allow GPS and, you know, we'll, we'll make it this hard to use, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll have to opt in and stuff like that. Well, they've just made that decision. So I guess that's the U.S position. That struck me as very, very odd. Again, I'm not criticizing Apple and Google here. Um, I'm sort of criticizing the rest of society for not pushing back and saying, well, it's not your call to make. We're, we're going to decide how we do it. And then, and then you will help us achieve this goal. But you know, when it comes to you know, what do I think the right way to think about the, the various trade-offs here it is, is, again, that it's not a privacy security trade-off. It, it's just it's just, you know, you can have your life to be worse off in one way or your life be worse off in another way, right? You can either give up some of your data in this particular way or you can not leave the house. And, and I myself am not in a position to say what the right answer is. And, and I don't think in my position as a lawyer, I don't I have any particular wisdom about that. And, and this to me is, is kind of the big way I think of, of thinking about, let's say, how the Fourth Amendment would, would interact, which is, there are some real policy trade-offs that have to be decided here. The Constitution does not answer, does not give us answers to what is the right policy trade-off. That is just a pure policy judgment, just like any other policy judgment in the United States, right? When, when we're trying to figure out what the right level of pollution is, given our economic development goals, but also our health and environmental stewardship goals, we don't look in the, in the Constitution to tell us. We don't ask judges to tell us in their wisdom what the answer is. We decide, well, there's a democratic process. That's going to tell us. And then the role of the, of the judges is to make sure that procedurally it is done in a way that accords with the rule of law and accords with kind of basic democratic interests. And, and that's similarly how I feel the future debates about digital disease surveillance should operate, right? We should get the technologists and the epidemiologists and the politicians in a room and, and they should tell us what they think would be sort of best for society. And then the job of the lawyer is to figure out what are the procedural protections that make sure that the programs are operating properly with sufficient oversight and transparency and effectiveness and that you know, things are properly uh, authorized and that, you know, the the powers only go as far as necessary and they don't extend beyond the time of the emergency is over. That, that's the framework that I've been trying to build out in, in, in my writing on all of this. Again, that leaves a lot to lawyers, right? Because lawyers and judges are good at thinking about procedure. But what I don't think they're necessarily good at is is deciding for the rest of us whether or not, you know, some privacy intrusion is necessarily worth having for decreasing infection rates by, you know, 3% or decreasing R0 or, or whatever the case, whatever the case may be. So here's where I both dump a little bit on the computer scientists and EPIs and, and Google Apple for the privacy solution they had, but also disagree with, with Alan. So I managed to get everybody irritated with me. And that's the, what you've got here is an intervention in public health. And you can't do an intervention in public health 
unless you talk to the public health people, explain what the intervention does and have them say, oh, it's going to have this impact. And, and you say, I never realized this impact. And so I'll go back to the exposure notification apps and the UK study that showed it dropped numbers. Dropping numbers is great for everybody. But dropping numbers, if it also means that you take resources from one community and move it to another, because the people who say, they, I think I've been exposed, I want to test, they get the doctor's attention, they get the test. And what I learned in writing the book was how important trust is for contact tracing. Trust of the patient who's infected so that they'll tell you who they've been with. Trust of the people you go to who've been exposed so that they will isolate. What a contact tracer does, and there's this, there was this great Johns Hopkins Coursera course you could take, what a contact tracer does is they first establish a relationship with the person who's ill. They find out if the person who's ill can isolate, if they're safe isolating at home, if somebody will get them food. And when I talk to contact tracers in Liberia, they operated differently than contact tracers on the White Mountain Apache Reservation. It really depends on culture. Who, they tr- who the people who are infected trust, what the community rules are, and so on. And so understanding how the intervention affects public health is an absolutely crucial thing. And then modifying public health so that it benefits everybody. And, and so it's really easy to think about the tool as, hey, I got this device. It's got Bluetooth. It's going to tell me when somebody nearby later is diagnosed. It sounds really cool and valuable for those people who get to work from home and whose lives aren't disrupted if they have to not leave the house for two weeks. But it doesn't work the same for everybody. And that's the part that really has to be part of this equation and is largely not part of the discussion, unfortunately. So to close, I'd be curious to hear from both of you. We've talked a lot about surveillance in the digital disease context, but I I wonder if there are broader lessons to be learned here from the experience with COVID-19 surveillance to import that onto broader ongoing conversations about surveillance in other domains, right? Is there any, when you guys think back on on everything that's happened in the past year with these apps and with surveillance programs in other countries, do you see broader lessons for surveillance questions in the United States? Well, We all started carrying smartphones or cell phones to start with, and then smartphones, and it's the radio in your pocket that that can track where you are outside. In the encryption debate, we're now talking about client-side scanning, which would be somewhat different because it would be a surveillance tool in your pocket. But if we talk about having to use the apps, I don't know what that means for the general public. Are people going to be willing to carry around a phone with them if it means that it exposes they hung out with their best friend who happens to work for the competitor, or it reveals that they hung out with a former girlfriend for a for a beer? I I think that the whole idea that we would have to use digital contact tracing or digital exposure notification apps is a very scary model and one that that has not been thought through at all, as opposed to, here's the app, it's a choice to use it. And in Singapore, it's no longer really a choice, because to enter a mall, to enter a business place, to go to work, you need to, to have the app on your phone, and it needs to be running. And so the idea that the app use was voluntary is by now a fig leaf rather than a reality. Alan, for you, any broader lessons learned? Yeah, I, I think for me, the... The, the potential of, of digital disease surveillance shows the, the limitations of the traditional way that I think lawyers and judges tend to think about surveillance, which is in an in a individualized way. You know, the, the police decide that they want to search your house. And so they go to a judge and they establish probable cause that your house has evidence of a particular crime. And it looks like this and it's in this location. And then the judge decides yes or no. And, and then you can go and, and you know, and if, 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 if yes, then the, then the, then the cops can, can go in. You know, obviously digital disease surveillance was never going to be able to work that way. You know, because in, in particular of the asymptomatic nature of a lot of transmission, you're going to have to do broad population based surveillance. Um, and so I think 
you know, just to mention some of the things that, that Susan uh, just mentioned, right? Client side uh, scanning uh, to kind of deal with with in- encrypted messaging, which obviously has nothing to do with digital disease surveillance, but is another kind of you know, interesting potential future surveillance tool. That's that's another example of where the surveillance doesn't happen on an individualized basis, but happens programmatically, and where probable cause is not going to work as a standard because if you require probable cause, you'll never surveil anyone. So what this is kind of telling me is that the, the future of surveillance is programmatic and that we need to work to develop the legal tools to effectively analyze programmatic surveillance, permit some of it, that which is minimally intrusive and is efficacious, right, where you get your your bang for the buck, as it were, and at the same time not permit uh, any surveillance at all. We don't have a lot of experience with that. The doctrinal tools, which in the Fourth Amendment is something called the special needs exception, has historically been actually very solicitous of the government in a way that I think is excessive, that has not demanded enough of the government. And a lot of my writing over the last year and my writing for Lawfare um, has been trying to build out a much more rigorous test, what I call special needs with with bite, a, a, a way to permit programmatic surveillance in a way that is much more privacy protective. Um, you know, the best example we have of this in the United States uh, for the digital surveillance side is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. But that's quite controversial. And because it's also secret, because it's national intelligence and foreign intelligence, national security and foreign intelligence surveillance, we haven't been able to have as robust and as clear of a debate about it as possible, um, as we would otherwise like to have. Uh, whereas something like digital disease surveillance, I think, would offer us that opportunity. Um, so I, I think that you know, for lawyers and judges thinking about this, that's kind of the, the, the lesson for the next few years, um, to develop those sets of tools so that you know, as technology advances and as we realize that we can do a lot of good with broad programmatic surveillance, we are able to channel that in a way that is uh, nevertheless as privacy protective as possible. And that is all the time we have today. Thank you both. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Ian Enright, and the podcast, as always, is produced and edited by Jen Howell. If you listen to the Lawfare Podcast on a podcast service that allows you to rate and review, please do so. If not, or even if so, please share us widely on Facebook, on Twitter, or wherever else. And for those of you who aren't aware, Lawfare now has a Patreon page. Please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash lawfare, and you'll get access to special benefits like the Lawfare Live program and other cool things. As always, thanks so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.